At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. Used from time to time of hiding information about UFO. What do you have to say to that kind of thing? Well, these charges are absolutely untrue. Actually, the United States Air Force releases statistics on the UFO phenomena through the Department of Defense press desk periodically. And we've always honored accredited media when they want to investigate a given specific sighting. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to hide at all. Is there anything in the files, either classified or unclassified, that would indicate that there may be extraterrestrial visitors overhead? First of all, the project is completely unclassified. And there's nothing in the records that could indicate that we have been visited by any advanced civilization. How does the Air Force look upon people who uh, make reports of UFO? Do they look on them as qualified observers? Yes, they do look on them as qualified observers. Actually, most people who report a UFO sighting are patriotic citizens who have been mystified by something that they've seen. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. April 24th, 1964. Six months after the assassination of President Kennedy, a police officer named Lonnie Zamora chased a speeding car down a desert stretch of Highway 185 outside the town of Socorro, New Mexico. While in pursuit, he heard a roaring sound and looking to the southwest saw a flame in the sky, maybe a half mile in the distance. He knew that there was a dynamite shack somewhere in that area and figured it must have exploded. He abandoned his pursuit of the speeding car and drove in the direction of the flame. In a report about the incident filed by Colonel Eric DeJoncure of the United States Air Force, he has Zamora claiming that the flame was, quote, bluish and sort of orange in color. However, He could not tell the size of the flame, which was slowly descending. The flame was of a narrow type, 
and streamed down into a sort of funnel shape, end quote. Zamora drove slowly westward on a gravel road. Here he is describing what happened next in an interview with KSRC's Walter Schrode. I went up that little road for about half a mile, I guess. Uh, came up to this little parking deal there on the side of the road, and I sort of glanced out the, of the window, looked to my left, to see this white object on the ground. So I thought it might be a car that had turned over. Uh-huh. So I also read in a real big hurry going out there to investigate, thought maybe somebody would be hurt. Uh, that time I saw this white ache, ache shaped looking object. It was aluminum white in color, though, he pointed out, not chrome. Photos taken later of the site show a desert scene low scrub, sandy soil rocks, distant mountains. He is a half mile or more from town. He briefly stopped his cruiser and saw two figures by the egg-shaped object. Two what appeared to be people dressed in white uniforms with, uh, did they have helmets on like spacemen or anything? No, sir, I wouldn't say it. There are people, I just, I saw something white, white coral. But you didn't, you couldn't identify them as actually being a human being as no, you and I are. No, sir. Were they two of them? I would say were two because one was in front and the other was in back. Zamora radioed back to headquarters that he was going to investigate. He lost sight of the figures in the white overalls. Leaving his car, he began to walk towards the object which he now saw was resting on two outward slanting legs. But his approach was cut short by a sudden, loud noise. When it took off, uh, it, it made a loud, loud roaring sound. Uh, that uh, yes, sir, very loud noise, roar sound. Panicked, Zamora turned and ran in the opposite direction. He banged his leg on the bumper of the cruiser, fell to the ground, losing his glasses, and scrambled to get further away. The object emitted a bluish-orange flame. Zamora said he was concerned it might blow up, but instead it rose into the air. And then after it got up in the air about 20 feet, while well, the sound seemed to disappear. The sound was uh, disappeared and was very, very quiet. We could hear a pin drop there. With the craft in the air and silently moving away from him, he noticed a marking on the side, which a second report has him describing as being red, about a foot to a foot and a half in height, and shaped like a, quote, crescent with a vertical arrow and horizontal lines underneath. Zamora claimed that the object then gained in altitude and moved off to the south. Later in this radio interview, Walter Schrode asked this strange question. It wasn't dragging anything. We had a report that uh, it was dragging something as it landed. No, I wouldn't say it was dragging nothing, just low to the ground. Schrode said he heard reports that the object was dragging something. Zamora denied it. The interview ended abruptly when Zamora said, Excuse me, Walter, I've got some, some military people at the service office who want to talk to me now. I believe they're from UFO. 
Uh, what you have is the military people that are here from the UFO to talk to you right now and to ask you some more questions about this. The military people who had come to speak with him were from the U.S. Air Force and were working on Project Blue Book, the effort to investigate and explain UFO sightings. While Blue Book officially ended in 1969, it has lived on in popular culture. At least three television shows, Project UFO, Dark Skies, and the History Channel show Project Blue Book, have centered on Blue Book investigations, and it is found in countless other shows, movies, and books. Ezekiel saw the wheel. This is the wheel he said he saw. These are unidentified flying objects that people say they are seeing now. Are they proof that we are being visited by civilizations from other stars? Or just what are they? The United States Air Force began an investigation of this high strangeness in a search for the truth. What you are about to see is part of that 20-year search. The UFO era is generally considered to start in 1947, when a pilot named Kenneth Arnold saw nine metallic flying disks traveling at high speeds near Mount Rainier. His story hit the newspapers two days later. The Chicago Sun, for one, ran a page two story headlined, Supersonic Flying Saucers Sighted by Idaho Pilot. Speed estimated at 1,200 miles an hour when seen 10,000 feet up near Mount Rainier. Two weeks later, in New Mexico, the public information officer at Roswell Army Air Force Base issued a press release stating that the 509th Operations Group had recovered a flying disc that had crashed on ranch land. The disc landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico. The Roswell crash is probably the best known of all UFO stories. We'll get to it later in the series. But while these are the two most famous UFO incidents from 1947, they are far from the only ones. This is Air Force Captain Hector Quintanilla speaking in 1964. At the time, he was the head of Project Blue Book. Here in 1947, we had a rash of unidentified flying objects reported to the Air Force. A researcher named Ted Blocher set out to document just how many UFO reports there were that year. On January 1st, 1967, he made public his findings in a book called Report on the UFO Wave of 1947 published by the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, a leading civilian UFO research organization. It was just fantastic, the number of cases that he found. He found 830 cases initially. He found well over 1,000. When he finished, he published a book on the 800 cases that he had done, and I got interested in what he was doing. My name is Jan Aldrich. I am retired from the Army with 25 years, and I'm retired from the post office 25 years. During my Army career, I worked in meteorology, intelligence and security, 
safety and personnel. So uh, I have uh, quite a bit of experience in all these areas. But I started looking at newspapers to find more cases. Blocher only done about 170 newspapers in the United States and Canada. I continued this on and he continued it on. We've, we continue to find more and more cases. There was about 11,000 newspapers in North America in 1947. So just a few had been scanned, had looked for items and uh, it was obvious that if there's 800 items in, in about 200 newspapers, what are there going to be in 1,000, 2,000, 5,000? I set my goal as doing 3,000 newspapers with the help of people all over the world. Looking through newspapers in 47, we were able to do about 5,000 total newspapers. Though some of the cases were admittedly trivial, these were, after all, the earliest days of the UFO era. Aldrich, Blocher, and others were able to identify about 3,000 sightings reported in 1947. 3,000. 1947 is, is interesting. What Blocher, myself, and other people that looked at what we found, Amy Michelle, Dr. James McDonald at the University of Arizona and other people said all the UFO activity that we know of currently existed in 1947, except maybe abductions. This is kind of a revelation. The phenomenon does not evolve. In other words, almost anything that you think of when you think about UFOs today turned up in the cases from 1947, except for abductions. Again, Captain Hector Quintanilla on the 1947 UFO sightings. During this time, General Sanford directed the Air Force to establish an office to try to determine what these unidentified flying objects were. The program that became Project Blue Book started out as Project Sign. The program is threefold, and the Air Force interest in the UFOs is first to determine if a possible threat to the security of the United States exists. Second, to determine the technical or scientific characteristics of any such UFOs. Third, to try to explain or identify all UFO sightings reported to the service. The UFOs as such do not pose any threat to the security of the United States. I do get a number of reports from people who claim that they have uh, seen little green men. Retired Air Force pilot James McGahey. The program was started primarily out of concern over security issues that possibly had nothing to do with alien spacecraft. It had to do is something going on in the airspace of the United States is possibly some foreign country doing something, possibly the Soviet Union. And that's really why it started. Jan Aldrich. 
project site had a lot of engineers and aviation experts involved with it. It involved lots of people. And it probably, as far as the military goes, is probably the biggest project. It became fairly apparent very early on that people were seeing all kinds of things in the sky, but most of them could easily be explained with prosaic explanations of natural phenomena and misidentification and various autokinetic effect, various other psychological effects and visual effects. And the Air Force said, why are we doing this? We don't want to be doing this. Project Sign's name changed in 1949 to Project Grudge. And with the name change came a change in direction, a certainty that what people were seeing were not extraterrestrial craft. The attitude was now that we can explain all these things away, either as hoaxes, hallucinations, or man-made objects. And that was their uh, theme song for about up till the middle of 51. After January 52, it, it changed its name to Project Blue Book. They had a bunch of reserve Air Force officers who were called into service because of the Korean War, and they were put on this. So it had about eight, eight or nine people that were working on UFOs in that era, up till about early 1953. Then these people started to be released from active duty service. The program was never very big. Most of the time it was only five people, one officer, a couple enlisted people, a secretary, and one consultant, J. Allen Hynek. At the beginning of their interest in UFOs, the Air Force contacted J. Allen Hynek, at the time an astronomer at Ohio State University, to see if he might be interested in consulting on what was then Project Sign. They understood that some percentage of the cases would be traceable back to stars, meteors, and other such phenomena. He liked to claim that he was like the innocent bystander who got shot accidentally. This is in the late 1940s. He was teaching astronomy at Ohio State, and one day a couple of uh, Air Force people from Wright Field, it's now Wright-Patterson, Dayton, came to visit him at the university. Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell. I am uh, the author of The Close Encounters Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs. It's a biography of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who is one of the best known, if not the best known, UFO experts of all time. After making small talk for a while, they said, hey, so what do you know about these UFOs? Well, UFOs were a new thing in that time period, 1947, 48. And Hynek, being a serious scientist, just kind of shrugged it off and said, well, you know, I think the whole thing's kind of stupid. I think it's just a phase. People are still kind of jumpy after Pearl Harbor, worried about sneak attacks. And these Air Force people said, well, we have a job for you if you're interested, because we have a whole pile of these UFO reports and we don't know what to do with them. And we'd like to have an astronomer look at them and tell us if these people are really just seeing ordinary astronomical objects that they're just misinterpreting somehow. And Heineck said, sure. I mean, basically to him, it was easy money. Heineck is an interesting and important figure in UFO lore. And we will spend more time looking at his life and career as a UFO investigator. 
But for now, what's important is that he was involved in an effort to look at the information that had been collected during Project Sign, Project Grudge, and the early days of Project Blue Book. This effort was known informally as the Robertson Panel. In 1953, the CIA put together a a panel, a committee, um, on the the scientific study of UFOs. Something like that was the official title. And it's one of those things where the report was classified for a long time. It wasn't until, you know, decades later that the public got to see the report. But the Robertson panel was uh, dedicated to looking at whether or not the UFO phenomenon might be a threat. I am Aaron Gullius. I'm a, a history teacher and writer and the host of the Saucer Life podcast. Like most defense and intelligence establishment efforts to investigate UFOs in the 1950s, this was mostly concerned about, not about determining what the things in the sky are, but determining whether or not the things in the sky are a danger to national security or something that needs to be dealt with immediately. James McGahey. At that time, they were, again, concerned about Soviet disinformation because the Soviet Union, since in around 1948, had spent a huge amount of time trying to seed disinformation, try to disrupt society in the United States. The KGB and various other organizations just trying to make trouble inside the United States, whether physical uh, trouble or psychological trouble. And the CIA was very concerned that the Soviet Union might use UFOs as a way to spread panic in the United States. The Robertson panel was so named because it was chaired by Howard Robertson, a highly respected physicist and mathematician at Caltech, who also worked on a number of government and military programs. He was asked by the CIA to assemble a team of experts to evaluate the UFO evidence to date. The panel comprised mostly other physicists, along with a CIA officer who was also a missile expert and served as the panel secretary. Heine was very disappointed right off the bat with the Robertson panel because he was invited in as sort of a guest speaker, but he wasn't part of the panel. And he legitimately felt that he, he probably should have been part of that panel. So it was handled very, very informally, without much serious intent. And Heineck just basically felt like when he went into interview with them, when he gave testimony to this panel, that he was just sort of dismissed and, you know, they, they didn't really take anything he said very seriously. In all, the panel met for 12 hours over four days and examined 23 cases or about 1% of the total number that were available. At one point, they watched a movie of some UFOs taken by an Air Force photographer or a military photographer that's actually, even today, is still pretty remarkable film to watch. They projected the film on a wall in the conference room where you couldn't make out much detail, and all the members of the panel said, oh, well, those are obviously seagulls. Well, this took place in Utah, very far from any ocean, so I don't know where, where they thought seagulls were coming from. So that was the Robertson panel. Heineck was pretty disappointed in how that worked out. Aaron Gullius. The Robertson panel concluded that, you know, physically, sort of operationally, there was no 
real danger from the UFOs, but the concept of the UFOs, the concept of invaders from outer space, the concerns about people not knowing what these things might be and the government not knowing or not sharing what these things might be, that there might be some negative effects on the public with regard to keeping them focused on the Soviet Union as, you know, geopolitical enemy number one. They worried that that the UFOs might be a distraction if, if sort of the popular conception of UFOs as alien craft uh, continued to, uh, to be on the rise. So among the recommendations the Robertson panel made was to work on the educational side of things, to encourage media outlets to present their news stories and documentaries on, on the UFOs as being essentially harmless, not a danger, not anything to worry about, to sort of defang and devenomize the UFOs as an existential threat. The recommendations weren't just to discourage the view that UFOs were something to be concerned about, but also to encourage the development of skills to help people evaluate any information they were provided with. The CIA actually said in that report that we should create a program to teach critical thinking to the American public such that they will not be easily swayed by disinformation and panic the things that aren't real. It's probably the best thing the CIA ever said. Unfortunately, it was instituted. So the Robertson panel ended up disregarding UFOs as physical entities. Might there have been a thumb on the scale? In reply to a letter from James Klotz that was posted to the Computer UFO Network on the World Wide Web, or CUFON, Robertson panel member Thornton Page wrote, quote, H.P. Robertson told us in the first private, no outsiders, session that our job was to reduce public concern and show that UFO reports could be explained by conventional reasoning, end quote. There's no corroboration for this story, but it is interesting in what it implies about the goals of the meetings. So the Robertson panel dismissed the notion that UFOs were real, physical objects, or anything that the public should be concerned about. And yet, people continued to see things that they couldn't explain, and the Air Force kept investigating. And one of these investigations drew Alan Hynek to the small town of Socorro, New Mexico, to try to determine what a local policeman had seen in the desert. After the break. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So back to Lonnie Zamora and his sighting in Socorro, New Mexico in 1964. Remember, Zamora had been chasing a speeding car on I-85 when he heard a roaring sound and saw flames descending from the sky. He turned off the highway and came upon two white-clad figures outside an egg-shaped craft. With another loud roar, the craft took off again, flying low over the desert before rising into the sky. The Air Force clearly felt a sense of urgency to deal with this sighting. The first report on the case was filed two days after the encounter, on April 26th. On April 27th, a second report was submitted. On the 28th, four days after the encounter, Alan Hynek was summoned to New Mexico to assist with the investigation. This is Hynek speaking with KSRC Radio's Walter Schrode. From the beginning, there was confusion as public statements by Hynek and the Air Force investigators were at odds with those of Zamora and other locals. This is Lonnie Zamora with the ever-present Walter Schrode. Schrode had asked Zamora if the craft he saw bore any markings. Yes, it did. Uh, not from that uh, far, I didn't see the markings. When I went up, Closer to it, I did see the markings. And uh, someone said that uh, the markings that you saw was an, an upside-down V with three lines running through it. No, sir, I couldn't tell you that because they still uh, don't want you to say nothing about the markings. They don't want you to say anything about the markings. All right, we won't question you on that. And if we run into an area that they don't want you to uh, talk about, well, you just say so. 
But when Schrode interviewed Hynek, Hynek disputed that the Air Force had put any restrictions on what Zamora could say. I was called by the Pentagon this morning, and there's an Associated Press report out to the effect that some Air Force person had told Mr. Zamora not to say anything about the uh, lettering. And uh, I was asked specifically to find out whether this statement had been made, who made it, and all that sort of thing. Zamara tells me that no one, Air Force or no one else, told him not to say anything about it. But this is how these rumors get started. To emphasize the point that the Pentagon had nothing to hide, Heineck described the marking as related to him by Zamora. He says Zamora, quote, described it to me as an inverted V with sort of a bar across it. Earlier, we heard that Zamora described it as a, quote, crescent with a vertical arrow and horizontal lines underneath, which isn't exactly the same as what Heineck says, but close enough that I don't think Heineck is being intentionally misleading. Later in the interview, Schrode asked Heineck if Zamora had told him that there had been men around the craft. I know that there were early reports that he had seen people, but uh, to me he said nothing specific about people. Did he describe seeing objects that appeared to be uh, in white coveralls? He indicated that um, uh, he saw something along the side, or on the side of the instrument or the device that resembled white coveralls, yes. But when Ray Stanford, a NICAP investigator, who had come to Socorro to look into Zamora's claims, asked Louis Rydell, the editor of a Socorro newspaper, who had talked to Zamora about the encounter, there is again this disconnect between the story that Zamora is telling and Hynek's assertions. In talking to Dr. Hynek, he implied that Zamora had told him nothing specific at all about seeing any men, implied they hadn't even, he hadn't even mentioned any men. He later seemed to come down and say that he mentioned coveralls after uh, very pointed questioning by one of the persons who was present. But did, um, in this talk with Zamora, soon after the sighting, since you were one of the first to be there, did he mention to you that he actually saw men or just coveralls? Uh, he very definitely did. He said there were, were two there. Now, he didn't say anything about them men, but... Uh, uh, you not to think so because he said that he, uh, when he was still in the car, that one of them, both uh, men or objects, had their back to him. And one of them turned around and looked him squarely in the face. That was his uh, exact words. And uh, he, he very definitely uh, said that he saw two men there at, uh, at the object. And uh, he said that immediately he uh, they disappeared and uh, apparently got in the plane from the side, from the west side, and uh, the plane lifted up and started off. The investigation was made more difficult by a lack of physical evidence. There were some shallow depressions where Zamora had seen the craft and some of the brush showed burn marks. But that was all. The Air Force investigators at the scene listed the facts 
that they were able to establish. They were unable to find any witnesses other than Zamora. There were no unidentified helicopters or aircraft in the area at that time and no unusual radar readings. The weather was windy but clear, so a weather phenomenon was ruled out. There was no evidence of markings of any sort in the area other than the shallow depressions where the craft had been. Soil samples taken from the site disclosed no foreign material or unusual radiation, and burned brush showed no evidence of chemical propellants. There was no evidence presented that the object was extraterrestrial in origin or represented a threat to the security of the United States. But despite these findings, there was a general belief that Zamora had seen something, that he hadn't hallucinated and he wasn't lying. Hynek wrote, That Zamora, although not overly bright or articulate, is basically sincere, honest, and reliable. He would not be capable of contriving a complete hoax, nor would his temperament indicate that he would have the slightest interest in such. In fact, Hynek was sure that Zamora had seen a physical object and that it was important to determine what exactly that object was. Given the proximity to Air Force bases such as Holloman and Kirtland, the investigation focused on whether the craft could have been a helicopter, an experimental lunar module, or a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, a kind of hybrid vehicle that could take off like a helicopter and then fly like a plane. A considerable amount of space in the Project Blue Book file about the Zamora case is taken up with letters sent to try to determine if any of those types of aircraft might have been active in that area at the date and time of Zamora's encounter. These inquiries did not turn up an explanation. Could it have been a hoax? That is some people's preferred theory. See, Lonnie Zamora wasn't just a Socorro police officer. He was an actual police officer in the police force, but he was also a campus police officer at the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology, which is a very respectable college there. Smallish, but respected. Hi, I am Brian Dunning. I'm best known for the Skeptoid podcast at Skeptoid.com, where we take a science-based look at urban legends. It was like a character in a movie, okay? He's the guy that all the students would make fun of. He was extremely rigid. He was overweight. I mean, they, they, they would make fun of him. And what the president of the university always said was, yes, this was some of our students. They were making fun of him. They were hoaxing him. They put a big balloon out in the desert. They tricked him into chasing one of their guys up this dirt road. And once he got there, they put this balloon with some flashing lights on it and they towed it off at high speed following behind another car and another road. Something like you might expect out of the movie Animal House, okay? Remember this odd question that Walter Schrode asked Lonnie Zamora? It wasn't dragging anything. We had a report that uh, it was dragging something as it landed. No, I wouldn't say it was dragging nothing, just low to the ground. It makes me wonder if, in fact, the UFO wasn't dragging something, but was actually being towed. But Zamora seems to deny this. Regardless, 
There's documentation that a student hoax was suspected, at least by some people. The president of the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology was named Sterling Colgate. In 1968, he received a letter from his friend, the chemist and winner of two Nobel Prizes, Linus Pauling, that included a question about the Zamora encounter. In response, Colgate wrote, I have good indication of student who engineered hoax. Student has left. Now, Lonnie Zamora always stuck to his story. And by all accounts, Lonnie Zamora was a 100% straight up, straightforward guy. He was honest. He was patriotic. He loved his family. He was a good, strong member of the community. Literally, I've never heard anyone say anything bad about the guy, that he was unreliable. And not for a minute do I claim that he was lying or making anything up. Nevertheless, if the word gets out that you were hoaxed, most of us are more likely to kind of double down on our original story than to admit that we were hoaxed and fooled by a bunch of snot-nosed jerky kids at this university. The balloon idea had been floated earlier in the files and dismissed in part because the winds that day were blowing opposite the direction that the object took. There was also speculation about whether a car could have towed the balloon, as Dunning describes. But that was similarly doubted because the expectation was that a car would have kicked up dust and there was no report of dust, nor were tire tracks from a tow car found at the scene. In an April 29, 1965 letter to Donald Menzel at the Harvard Observatory, Heinick expressed skepticism about a hoax, and he tells this anecdote, which seems to address the explanation voiced by Dunning. The Paz once told me of an instance in which some college students wanted to get even with a geology professor, so they planted a, quote, meteorite, unquote, and contrived an explosion at some distant part of the state and had this poor professor running around ragged chasing a meteorite. The perpetrators, however, were caught and expelled from school because they simply couldn't keep their secret. They, quote, confided, unquote, to friends who in turn confided to others, and there you are. So where does this leave us? The case has never been conclusively solved. As Brian Dunning says... The Lonnie Zamora story is, you'll find it as one of the foundational stones in any book about UFO stories. In the end, you are left with a credible witness, but only one. The physical evidence is scant. The description of the vehicle in egg on stilts seems like something you'd see on a science fiction movie or television show more than an actual craft from an advanced civilization. But the alternative explanations aren't without their flaws. I find myself agreeing with Dunning because I can imagine tire tracks being missed in the desert or the search for them taking place after the wind and the weather had obscured them. That seems more likely to me than a visit by a craft from a different planet or in Jim Penniston's view, a different time. In the 1965 letter to Menzel, Heineck offered his thoughts a year after the encounter. It seems much more likely to me that he saw a strange test craft, which is super secret. The flaws in this reasoning are that if it is so secret, why would anyone be landing a half mile south of a town? Why, also, have we been unable to unearth from various agencies, 
any classified clues as to such going on. And that's probably the best place to leave it, with the caveat that the default position here is not an extraterrestrial craft. There is no evidence that this is the case. There is simply a sighting and, in the absence of a definitive explanation, the most likely possible solutions. What this undoubtedly was, was another story in a growing litany of such stories that seemed to indicate that there was something going on in our skies that the government either couldn't explain or was keeping secret. Heineck acknowledged this in his letter to Donald Menzel. There is no question that a mighty folklore is being built up in this whole field. Someday, it might be worthwhile to document all this for the benefit of historians who will look back at the era. Two years later, another piece of this folklore would be born in Michigan. An event that would come to symbolize the public's distrust over the government handling of UFO reports and shake Alan Hynek's belief in the work he was doing for the Air Force. Hynek, the Air Force's skeptical scientist investigator, would become a believer. Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart 3D Audio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. And special thanks to Wendy Connors, creator of the Faded Discs archive of UFO-related audio on archive.org. Learn more about Strange Rivals over at grimandmild.com. And find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R.